So good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, we, our church, we do this every year for the last Sunday in October. We uh, switch uh, pulpit with another church, and I always find it a, just a fascinating thing to do. And uh, the way things work over at our church, uh, Mike Maisie will actually get up to preach at about 10:45. So he's not even he's not even up to preach yet. But uh, I, I guess there'll be a little bit of time where we have the sermon going on here and the sermon going on over there. Is this okay the way I have this here? Okay, good. So, if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read uh, verses 8, 9, and 10, and then in a little bit we'll look a bit earlier in the chapter also. But Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 8, familiar verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ephesians and this particular portion of chapter 2 here. Father in heaven, help us this morning to understand this portion of your word. And we ask that it would shape our thinking and shape the way we live our lives, that we would leave our time in this text encouraged, built up, perhaps hearing uh, things that are new to some of us or things that we've known before but we need to be reminded of. We ask that you would be uh, indeed shaping us through this text this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm guessing that most of you have some level of familiarity with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, and I'm, I'm thinking about um, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Do you remember Eustace Scrub? Eustace, spoiled, nasty little guy who ends up uh, in Narnia, not wanting to be there, and he's just complaining and, and bitter all the time. And if you remember the story, either from the movie or having read the book, uh, at one point they come across a dragon's lair full of gold and treasures, and, and Eustace loves the treasure so much that he ends up becoming a dragon. And uh, it's sort of his, his god, we, we become like what we worship, and he becomes... Uh, a, uh, a dragon. And there's a bit of a place later on in the story where Aslan, um, he's, Eustace is getting really sick and tired of being a dragon and he wants to change. And Aslan says, you have to remove your clothes, which means he's got to remove his dragon skin. And he tries and he takes his, it's, it's like a, a snake sheds a layer of skin. And Eustace, uh, peels off a layer of dragon skin only to find that there's another layer of dragon skin under that. And he does this three times. He has three dragon skins lying on the ground next to him, and he's still a dragon. And it's a metaphor. Do you ever feel like you're aware in your own life of your sinful patterns? Uh, whether you think simply of, of bad habits, or you think of stuff that's in your heart that I thought I repented of this, but here it is again. This stuff shows up in me, and I can't seem to get rid of it. And that's what this is a, a metaphor for. And so our, our passage today, when you think about verses 
8 and 9, that's largely about the, the initial process of becoming a Christian. But verse 10 is also talking about the ongoing life of a Christian doing good works. And there's a, a phrase that comes from the Protestant Reformation and people's reflections over the years about the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and it goes like this. Uh, the Reformers said, on the one hand, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. And this is verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, saved by faith alone. And this is verse 10, the faith that's saved is never alone. There are good works that follow. And so that, that's my, my train of thought this morning. We want to work first through verses 8 and 9 and saved by faith alone. And then secondly, work, look at verse 10, the faith that saves is never alone. So the question before us is, how do I get right with God? And you notice in verse 8 you have this phrase, uh, it's not of your own doing. And then in verse 9, it's not a result of works. And this is the great contrast you see, especially in Romans and Galatians, but all over the New Testament. How do you get right with God? By faith or by works? So I want you to picture it this way. Uh, I want you to picture, and I'm aware this is, this is, uh, is, what is this? Family Sunday? Children's Sunday? So, kids, I, I, I got a picture for you. You gotta, I'm not drawing it. You gotta draw it in your own mind, okay? So I want two rectangles. You got a rectangle here. Can you, can you do this in your heads? Rectangle here. And we're writing the word faith inside this rectangle. And then we got another rectangle over here. And we're writing the word, I'm sorry, let's do it the other way around. Let's put works over here, okay? Rectangle, works. Rectangle, faith. Got that? And in the middle, we're putting the word OR, all caps O-R. So that's the question. How do I get right with God? By works or by faith? Got the picture? You, you need it in your head because we're going to work with this picture actually quite a bit this morning. Okay? So that's the first thing. And you understand why the word OR is in the middle? It's, it's the huge difference between these two. How do I get right with God? It's either I make myself right with God, or God makes me right with God, and I receive that by faith. That's, that's the difference. And the fact of the matter is, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that the right answer is over here, it's faith. But actually, every one of us, we are strongly tempted to sit inside of this rectangle that maybe I can do good enough to make myself right with God. So Martin Luther, if you know some of his stories, he was tormented in his soul 500 years ago by his own sinfulness. He was very much aware of it. And there's this famous quotation. He thought that, so he became a monk. Uh, go off, live by yourself with other monks in a monastery. See if you can get away from the world, get away from sin. And uh, he said later, reflecting back on that time, he said, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order, my monastery, so strictly that I may say, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was I. Right? And so he had this mentor, a guy named Johann von Staupitz, who was sort of his pastor. And... Uh, Von Stauffitz said, how do I help this young man? He's so tormented. And he actually assigned him to study and teach from the Psalms, from Romans, from other portions of Scripture. And it was especially the book of Romans is what opened Martin Luther's eyes 
so the other rectangle, the face. Are you aware of this, this struggle? Maybe not all of us are quite as tormented by Martin Luther uh, and our own sinfulness, but there's a sense in which we all ought to be. There's a man in our church who's a, a medical doctor. Uh, he's in his 60s, um, semi-retired. And I was talking to him yesterday, and he said, the longer I go on in my medical practice, the more I come to the belief that everybody ought to be in recovery. But that was his exact word. Everybody ought to be in recovery. He meant by recovery, he meant everybody needs to be in therapy. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that quite the way he stated it, but I do think everybody, I, I've never known a person, non-Christian or Christian, I've never gotten to know them well without after a while, and I say this of myself too, seeing ways in which we're all a bit dysfunctional, we're all a bit weird, we're all a bit, we're, you know, this far from insanity. We got issues, all of us. I wouldn't say that necessarily means you need to be in therapy. It might mean you need to be in the Word and in prayer and in, in small groups where we, we meet with each other and we encourage each other and we have an openness to speak honestly into each other's lives and build each other up. I, I had an opportunity Friday night to speak at a small local, you might call it a conference or symposium about the Reformation. And uh, I was battling inside my heart, like, oh, maybe I can impress these people. Maybe they'll really like me. No, no, I'm not supposed to be thinking that way, Lord. Uh, uh, there are some other speakers there. You know, comparing my, you know, all these thoughts going through my head that aren't really godly. But they were there. We've all got this stuff. Uh, and one of our options then is to say, oh, maybe I can fix myself with this rectangle of works. So look with me earlier in the chapter. Uh, this describes us all before we come to Christ. You were dead. Notice that word. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air. What that means, you see that? Following the prince of the power of the air. That means Satan had you on his leash. What that means. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, meaning we deserved God's anger because of our sinfulness like the rest of mankind. Now, here's where the grace comes in, right? But, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's the key phrase, made us alive. We were dead, He made us alive. By grace, you've been saved. He raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we're, in a sense, already in heaven, so that, and here's how we look forward to it also, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean he's not showing those immeasurable riches now, but they'll even be more wonderful when we're with him forever. So, we come to this point eventually when we think through this and we get it, that we got two rectangles, works and faith, and the word or, we come to the point where we recognize we've got to get rid of this rectangle. Whatever you want to do in your mind. You got the picture with me? Okay, put a big X through this or just toss it out to the side. This is not an option. 
for getting right with God. It's, it's just faith. It's not our own works. Our passage here, Ephesians, emphasizes that what grace and faith do is bring us from death to life. The thing that was especially critical for Martin Luther that's parallel to that is the idea that he didn't have any righteousness and when he came to faith, he was given Christ's righteousness. And uh, Jeremy earlier, I don't know if you caught it, he used the word alien. It's uh, You might have one idea when you think of the word alien. But this is one of Martin Luther's most famous words. He said that when we come to Christ, what we get is an alien righteousness. And what he meant by that is it doesn't come from in ourselves. It, it's not this box of our works. It's Christ's righteousness that comes from without that God counts to our account. He reckons it to us. He imputes it to us. He gives it to us. We're ungodly, but we get Christ's righteousness. His death on the cross covers our sin. He took our sin, gives us His righteousness. Now, if you take a look at this phrase in 2.8, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. I want to add to our little picture. So, kids, how many rectangles do we have going right now? We're, we, somebody said two, but we're down to one, right? We got rid of the works. We have one, one rectangle. So we're going to add another one now. So you got the, the, the uh, faith rectangle. I, I want you to draw another rectangle right on top of it. And we're going to write the word grace in this one. Now, we're changing the picture a little bit. The line, it would be normally a straight line. If you got one rectangle and another rectangle, that'd be a straight line. But kids, do you know, like the top, can you picture the, the line at the top of a castle? It goes, you know, like little stair steps up and down. That's the line we want. Uh, so, in other words, the two rectangles, they fit together perfectly. And my point is that Grace, grace means, grace is this, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. So grace is God's love that we don't deserve. So my point is that grace coming down to us and faith coming up to God, which is so totally different than works, like I'm going to get my own righteousness. This is receiving God's grace. So let's pretend we're baby birds. Can you do that with me? In a nest. Baby bird in a nest. Okay? Does babe, baby bird is hungry. Does baby bird say, oh, I'm going to go get a worm. Because I can do that. Right? No. So what does baby bird do to be nourished? All baby bird does is look up and open his beak. That's an illustration of faith. Faith is this receptiveness, this receiving of God's grace. Uh, and, and the point of all this is to, to glorify God. To say, God, you are so amazingly loving and kind. I don't deserve this. I, I open my beak to receive nourishment from you. So that's what's meant here. There's a sense in which we're not nourished. We don't receive this new life by faith. It's grace that nourishes us. Faith is the receiving of it. But we're nourished by the, the worm from Mama Bird. That's grace coming down into our lives. 
And of course, the reason for this, we're told in verse 9, is so that no one may boast. Right? Does baby birds say, look at me. I'm so special. I got this worm. Right? Does baby bird boast? Okay. So, I, I want to help you think about how this might work out in your own life. And it, it works out all sorts of different ways in, in different scenarios. I think part of the boasting is let's not boast before God, like, God, you owe me something. But there's another element of this where it's let's not boast toward each other either because you ever heard the statement where you know the ground at the foot of the cross is level? We're all totally equal in terms of our sin and our need for God's grace. I love this illustration. I use it often. It comes from a favorite writer of mine named David Pallison. And what David Pallison says is, if you think about it, human diversity just spread out. All sorts of kinds of people with all sorts of strengths and weaknesses, gifts, ethnicities, just spread out so many different kinds of people. Right? But we, we have this temptation to take this horizontal spread and to flip it up vertically into ladders. And what we do is we position ourselves on these ladders and we look up and say, oh, I wish I was up like that person. Uh, yeah. And we feel sort of jealous, like, oh. And we look down, and that's what makes us feel good about ourselves. I'm better than those folks. Right? And and even when we look up and we're resentful, there's a bit of a boasting. It's obviously boasting if you say, oh, those poor suckers down there, I'm better than them. But even when we look up, that's a bit of boasting too, because it's like, I deserve to be up there. If things were the way they ought to be, I'd be up there. And we ought to think about that. Where are these places that we get our sense of, I'm okay, my sense of identity by how I compare to others, when what our passage is telling, I ought to get this sense that I am who I am and I'm settled in who I am because I opened my beak and grace came down to me. And that's make that's what makes me who I am. So ask God to help you lay down your ladders as you think about His grace and His grace being what makes you who you are. So that's faith alone. We're saved by grace through faith alone. And now we want to turn to verse 10. And what does this mean when we say the faith that saves is never alone? Because there are good works attached to it. And you understand the point that the, the good works don't come prior to faith over here. The good works flow out of faith. And so, kids, are you ready to draw another rectangle? So, we've got our rectangle of faith our, our jagged line up top and our rectangle of grace. And now we need to draw another rectangle out here on the right-hand side because we're sort of reading right to left. And so uh, this one, this rectangle, it gets jammed right up against faith. There's no space between the two. It could be a straight line, but there's, there's no space. And this rectangle says works in it, good works, doing what is good and right. And we're going to draw two arrows Two arrows from the faith box to the works box. Okay, and I'll talk about these two arrows. So, the first arrow 
is, is simply the arrow of what does it actually mean to believe in a person? In other words, if I'm baby bird and I open my beak, part of what's going on is it's a personal trust. It's not just faith in some facts. Baby bird trusts mama bird, that mama bird's not dropping poison in, you know? It's personal trust. And you see, if you come to believe in Jesus, that personal trust in Jesus Christ, you have some understanding, and you grow in this over time, but you have some understanding of who that is that's giving you grace. It's Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's this famous creed throughout the New Testament. Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe that this is God himself, the second person of the Trinity. And he, after he died and rose again, he ascended on high and given a great commission. All authority has been given to me. So part of what it means to trust in Christ is to submit to him as my Lord. If I tell you that I trust my doctor and my doctor says, you ought to start doing these exercises or you ought to take this medicine or you ought to change your diet. If I trust my doctor, do I do those things? Absolutely, right? So part of what it means to trust is to act upon that trust. So James 2.18, there's this line, uh, show me your faith without your works, which isn't possible, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so works, they don't come first, they flow out of faith. That's the first arrow. Here's the second arrow. And the second arrow may be the more important one, and it comes from our text here. So notice in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. And uh, in the Greek text, the word that gets the most emphasis here is the word his. So, So Paul's been working with this idea of works, and our works don't get us where we want to go. It's not about our works, it's about his work. His as, as opposed to ours. His work. What is his work? Us. We're his work. How so? Well, we've been created in Christ Jesus. Who did the creating? God. We're his workmanship. He created us in Christ Jesus. Is this, when you see the word create here, is this talking about Genesis chapter 1? The song, six days of creation, God created heaven's earth, God, six day God created human beings. Is that what this is talking about? Created in Christ Jesus. It's, it's not because this is talking specifically about Christians. We started out with everybody, but now we're down to those who've come to Christ. How about, um, you know, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, uh, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation or new creature. This, This line, created in Christ Jesus, is talking about what the earlier verses talked about. He made us alive. So, the idea of new creation, uh, new, how about John 3, new birth? How the spirit blows where it wills. You don't see it. You don't, you hear its sound. You don't see it. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. So, when a person comes to faith in Christ, God changes that person from the inside out. There's there's a new birth. There's a new desire to walk with God. There's a new power to obey God. And this is a teaching that's found throughout the entire Bible. It really 
originates in many ways in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 uses this idea of the new covenant, that the old covenant was written on tablets of stone, referring to what? Tablets of stone? Ten commandments? But the new covenant will be written on your hearts. And there's similar passages. Maybe the most famous is Ezekiel 36. I'll take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And it's all pointing forward to Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then sometimes we use uh, phrases in the New Testament, the, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that God changes us from the inside out to want to do what's right and to have a power to do what's right. Now, this idea then, I, I got my boxes here. I've got grace coming down to me. I receive it by faith, flowing out of this, both first hour because of the nature of faith itself, and secondly because of the Spirit's power, I do good works. Are these good works automatic? Like I just lay back on the couch and they just happen. Well, no, because there's commands throughout the New Testament, you know, put off your old self, put on your new self, make every effort. I mean, I've got to obey those commands. But there is a sense in which, because of the nature of faith, the first hour, because of the spiritual, there's a sense in which good works for a Christian, they're not automatic, they are inevitable. I want to use that word, they are inevitable. This is Martin Luther. In, in 1536, he's having a dialogue that someone wrote down with his colleague, Philip Melanchthon. And Martin Luther says this, Believers are new creatures, new trees. Accordingly, the demands of the law do not apply to them. For example, faith, and the key here is the word must. Faith must do good works. Just as it's not proper to say the sun must shine, or a good tree must produce good fruit, or three plus seven must equal ten, and, and he, as he goes on, he uses the, the Latin phrase de facto, which means just the fact of what it is. Here, here's how it is. No, he says, there's no command that tells the sun. He says, the sun shines de facto. A good tree is fruitful de facto. Three plus seven equals ten de facto. In other words, this is part of, again, because of my two arrows, this is part of the definition of a Christian. A Christian does good work. That's what flows out of faith. This verse, verse 10, has a, a bit of a, a personal touch for me. Uh, my mother died in 2000, 2006, 11 years ago, of cancer. She was 66 years old, so kind of young. Uh, but that last week of her life, she was receiving hospice care, and I was in her room with her. She's in bed, and two uh, former co-workers of hers came in to visit. And, uh, and she said to them, and she was referencing Ephesians 2.9, uh, she said, it, and this was within the week before she died, uh, she said, it must be the case that the good works that God prepared for me to do are done now. You know, other people have to go on with, with their good works, but the ones he assigned to me are done. I mean, she just took that verse like God prepared. So there's a sense in which 
Yeah, this is all of God. I mean, we He made us and He changed us. And the good works we do, you know, they flow out of us and they're inevitable. And yes, we have to obey, but this is His doing. He's made us to do them and we do them. And so there is something here for us to take home in the sense that think about your own life. Think about good works, the things that you do in your own life. And there are places where all of us sometimes do good things for the wrong reasons. Uh, there's times where we ought to be doing things and we, we get distracted and don't do them as we ought. I'm sure there's plenty of places, just picking up on my word, inevitable, where for all of us, we're doing the things we're supposed to do and it's this process of growth. But when you think about how do I grow in all this? Really, the place is the, the baby bird beak. It's more yieldedness to God, which, which is why we're gathered here. This is a place and a time for opening ourselves up at the beginning of the week. God, teach me, fill me, re, reinvigorate me for what I'm to do. It's why throughout the week we spend time praying, we spend time in the scriptures, we spend time in different ways connecting with each other. But it's all this, uh, you know, as the, as the deer longs for streams of water, so my soul longs for you. I, I want to be more yielded to you, O oh God. So this, this little grace to faith, to works, so it, the channel's open and it's happening and it's happening. Uh, I beseech you, Paul says, Romans 12, 1 and 2, by the mercies of God, you know, offer yourself a living sacrifice. You're, you're, you're alive and you're a sacrifice because you're yielded to Him and you're not conforming to the world. But you're being transformed. He's changing you. So this thing is happening. The, uh, the theologian Greg Beale illustrates it this way. He says, I've got, uh, he lives, doesn't live in upstate New York, but he's in, in Philadelphia, so he knows a little bit about snow anyway. Uh, this is a better illustration for us than him. He says, I got this rusty old snow shovel in my driveway. I don't particularly like to shovel my driveway. My neighbor, He's got this fancy snowblower. So when the snow comes, I don't really care to shovel my, my driveway. And my wife gets me to do it, and I do it half-heartedly. My neighbor, you know, two inches. He's out there. He loves it. He's just got this fancy machine. Or something like that. We've got the Holy Spirit in us. You know, I mean, we're motivated to do what's right because we have this power from God's Spirit working in us. So it's the call to yieldedness to what God's doing. Here's how John Calvin put all of this together, both the, the by faith alone part and the, the faith that saves is never alone because there's good works flowing out of it. Uh, John Calvin wrote in his commentary on the book of Galatians. He says, It is not our doctrine that the faith which justifies is alone. We maintain that it is always joined with good works. That's, that's this half, right? Verse 10. But, he says, we contend that faith avails by itself for justification. And we'd add for regeneration, for this making us alive and for us giving us Christ's righteousness. That's the open deep. Faith alone. Right? But it's not alone in the end. I want to close with a little bit about Eustace Scrub and what happened to his 
dragon skin. So when Eustace is getting tired of being a dragon, uh, Aslan meets him. And uh, Aslan led me a long way into the mountains. There was always this moonlight over and around the lion wherever we went. At last we came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before. And on the top of this mountain there was a garden. Trees and fruit and everything. This was, might be alluding to the, the Garden of Eden. Uh, new, but here we are, new creation. And the, anyway, it goes on. In the middle of the garden there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from out of the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would just ease the pain in my leg. He's got a, I think he had a bracelet or something around his leg that when he became a dragon, this was the thing that was especially hurting him. But the lion told me I must undress first. And this is probably in C.S. Lewis's mind an allusion to baptism. So this is where the, Aslan says you got to undress first. This is where he takes his skin off three times and it doesn't work. Right? So then we get to this point. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate by now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been, the other layers. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd, had, than I'd been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arms. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. And then C.S. Lewis comments a little bit later. Uh, Eustace comes back and he speaks to Edmund and he's rejoined with the others. And he, he says at one point, I, I'm sorry, I've been behaving pretty beastly. And then it says this. Uh, this is, this is C.S. Lewis, the author, speaking. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. And of course, that's our, our cure is finished completely when we're with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. But we have been changed. And it's a process now as the Spirit works and sanctifies and changes us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that we don't have to work our way, an impossible task, into a right relationship with you. We thank you that you've done it all and that not only have you saved us from our sins and brought us from death to life, 
and given us Christ's righteousness, but that you're at work in us now, changing us and, and creating good works in us and causing us more and more to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.